Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're done with your Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, and you uh, really uh, know what happened. Like, the brother did. The brother. That's what I thought, too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Do you want to talk about death? Yeah. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Welcome to Mystery Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mister mysteries. We do mysteries. I'm Mario. Who are you? I'm Mario. I'm Chloe. I'm trying to be charming, and it's just not working. <laughs> Don't try. Don't try so hard. Okay, that's my advice. <laughs> that's what Ellen would say. We yes. stand, Ellen. Yep. Anyway, good intro. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna go first this week. Yay! Yay! Um, and I'm going to do a part two, like I said, I was going to do. Okay, this is going to be nuts. I'm excited. More crazy shit that the Central Intelligence Agency was getting up to over the years. Um, they're a pretty crazy organization, you know, all of the crazy crap that they've done. I don't know if you know about it. Does the president always know about them? About what they're doing? Yeah. That is a matter of of great contention, I would say, and one which actually will play into the second one I'm going to do today. But I would say probably not. Pro- probably oh, wow. the president is not aware of everything that they're doing. 
Um, because, yes, there are sort of rogue operations, one might say, within the CIA that have occurred over the years, you know, in which only a few people, you know, were involved. Or Because you have to understand the, you know, we talk about, like, um, the different types of intelligence, right? The CIA is very much involved in human, as they say, human intelligence. So... Oh, okay. Part of what they do is develop sources, right? That's sort of the euphemism for it, which is to say they get people to become spies for them, turncoats, traitors, double agents. They, for example, a a really good example of this actually is uh, in Nicaragua, in in Central America, where the CIA made contact with a certain Manuel Noriega well before he became the famous Manuel Noriega, the colonel, you know, dictator uh, of Nicaragua, when he was simply Manuel Noriega, the military student, they made oh, contact wow. with him. They He became a CIA source. You know, 15, 20 years later, he's leading the country as its brutal military dictator who was helped. Does the CIA have anything to do with that? Yes, yeah, so I was going to say who was helped to, to get there by the CIA. So now, oh, you know, that's nice. worked, that's out, worked out pretty well for the CIA, right? You know. But that's how they work. It's not a good thing. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm being, I'm being sort tell of us, facetious. Tell us some stories. Um, but, but that, yes, that, that's not what, that's not like one of the ones I'm going to do today. But uh, there are uh, so, so many, so many more. I'm not going to do even half of the ones that are out there, right? Because I did three last week. I'm going to do two this week. Uh, just know, like, if you want to continue to dig into all the fucked up shit having to do with the CIA. There's there's a lot more to to to, to dig into, so what um I was I was going to talk about that actually at, at at the beginning. So I talked about Alan Dulles, right, the CIA director in the fifties, who was you know very very much into these sort of interventionist uh, misadventures. That is a word that I I feel like I need to keep saying surrounding these. I, I like that word. Misadventure. Death by misadventure. Yeah, exactly. Um, in, in different uh, parts of the world. And apparently he had like a, a sort of a target list of leaders that he felt needed to be taken out, right? Oh my God. Mainly as, you know, we talked about last week because their scene is being too close to the Soviet Union, too close to the communists, like, tipping in that direction. I feel like that's psychopathic. <laughs> well, I mean, if you had a list of people who you were going to murder, then yes. If you're the leader of an intelligence organization and you have a list of, you know, intelligence targets, I think it's less so. But the fact that it was essentially a kill list, yes, it, it is maybe a little tiny bit psychopathic. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Maybe. Um, can't psychoanalyze Alan Dulles from beyond the grave, I suppose. But according to him, his like main targets were, uh, as we talked about last week, Mohammed Mossadegh in uh, Iran. Uh, also, I guess it's Hakobo Arbenz in uh, Guatemala. Uh, of course, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, who's the taking out of him, you know, 
sort of fomented the whole Vietnam War, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Or at least that was, you know, a big part of it. Uh, Sukarno in Indonesia, of course, as we talked about last week as well. One I'm going to talk about this week, Patrice Lumumba in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as it's currently known, and Fidel Castro, of course, yes. in Cuba. And just as like a side note, I thought about talking about this, but it's, it's kind of too much to get into. The number of different attempts that the CIA and the United States made to try to assassinate Fidel Castro is astounding. There were, like, I don't know, tens, dozens of different schemes and plots to assassinate Castro, including literally an exploding cigar. (gasps) Like, you know, fucking Bugs Bunny cartoon. (laughs) Yes, that was a scheme that the CIA came up with, I believe. (laughs) That's insane. Yeah, so there's there's all that. And of of course, that was secret for a long time. fucking Bugs Bunny car, like fucking Looney Tunes. It was literal, literal Looney Tunes uh, in that, in that uh, instance. And, and of course, you know, the Bay of Pigs and all that stuff. And there's a lot you could say about Cuba. Um, Cuba. And there's a lot you can say about a lot of countries because according to this author um, of the uh, audiobook that I listened to, Stephen Kinzer, the CIA has been involved in no fewer than 14 of these misadventures around the world oh. throughout the years. He sort of has a, a different way of counting them perhaps than I would or, or maybe the, the, the common sense way of going about it would be. He only counts ones wherein the U.S. made a a decisive – was the decisive factor in the coup, in in the taking out, the assassination, you know, what what have you, whatever happened. So this leaves out some, like, um, I think even one or two that I talked about last week, but also includes other ones like Hawaii, you know, that I wouldn't necessarily talk about because that's actually – the intervention of Hawaii is like it, it starts like pre CIA. Um, oh, okay. Because the, the U.S. involvement in Hawaii goes back to like the late 19th century. You know, even though the Queen didn't end up getting deposed until much later. So, anyway, um, just to give you kind of a, a, an idea of the scope of, of, of what we're looking at here, right? Um, but what I, I am going to start with. Um, before I get into Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, is just a couple of terms to kind of lay the f- a, f- a framework here. I, f- I feel like I need to kind of take a, a little bit of step of, st- of a step back and uh, lay out where all of this is coming from, right? Because I yes. think you you've been struck many times throughout my reading about you know telling you about all this shit that the CIA has done, like, what the fuck? Like, they did this? Like, where, where is this coming from? Why are they doing all this, right? So some of the, for the of the, the precursors to what we're talking about here, um, specifically two terms. So first, the Monroe Doctrine. You may remember this if you ever took, like, AP U.S. history, right? Yes. So the, or even just regular U.S. history. Yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't... <laughs> Smart enough to take a push. I took a push. I didn't want to take. Only a got a push. four. Only got a four at, at Davidson. You had to get a five dev credit, which I thought was dumb. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, so the Monroe Doctrine. This is the notion proposed by, of course, President James Monroe on December second, eighteen twenty-three. I believe it was, it was his seventh um, 
addressed to the, the Congress that, that, that basically established two zones of influence. The old world, right, Europe over there, Africa, okay. and the new world, the United States, Canada, South America, the Caribbean, all the stuff over here. And he said, okay, we're not going to have this stuff anymore where the European countries come over here and have colonies in the new world and exert influence here. It's just, it's not going to happen anymore because the United States is going to stop it. All of this now is our zone of influence, right? So if there is a particular, you know, mining that, we want to do or a tract of land that looks really, you know, uh, per- particularly, you know, attractive, <laughs> you know, we're the ones that are going to get to steal it. So, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we're kind of, we're calling this, right? Okay. It's not exactly that, but y- you, you know what I mean? <laughs> if there's going to be any sort of, you know, power land grabs, it's going to be us who are going to be doing them here in this part of the world. And we'll leave you alone over there too. You know, we're we're not going to go and try to, you know, take anything. Um, We sort of had our little foothold, you know, with Liberia was set up, you know, mainly with the help of um, returned people from the United States um, who had, you know, been taken over themselves or whose, you know, recent ancestors had to be slaves in the United States. That was kind of how part of how Liberia was set up, but also with the help and with the money of the, you know, sort of progressive for their time organizations who were involved in this, right? So that, that, it seems weird now, but that was actually a progressive idea at the time was to have all the slaves and the descendants of slaves go back to Africa. So that's part of the Monroe Doctrine? The, doesn't really have too much with the Monroe Doctrine except to say that, like, we're going to stay out of Africa for the most part. Sorry, okay. Kind of got off on a tangent there. I get a little excited when I'm talking about history. So <laughs> I'm kind of a nerd. I don't know if you knew that. Maybe oh. you did. Not sure. Okay. News to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this was really one of the big organizing principles of American foreign policy, just moving forward, but especially over the course of the next century or so, at least through kind of the Reagan administration. This was a a very strong part of our policy. And what sort of changed it a little bit in 1804 was the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. And this was added by, of course, President Teddy Roosevelt. And this stated that the U.S. would intervene in conflicts on behalf of European colonial powers. So essentially what he was saying was that this um, was going to cut out those European meddlers and install the U.S. as a sort of de facto international police power in, in our Western Hemisphere. So if European powers, you know, if they, we were going to take, you know, actual uh, proactive action to stop them from, you know, set, setting up, you know, sort of colonialization um, in, in the Western Hemisphere. So if they wanted to colonize, like, Jamaica or something, I'm just making some, I'm just, sure. then the U.S. would be like, no. No, this is our. We're we're going to do that instead. It, exactly, and okay. and a, a good example of this, you know, would be the Spanish American War, okay. where you know we fought over Cuba, 
Um, and it was literally that, you know, exact circumstance, right? Like the, there was a, a Cuban uprising, um, which, you know, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not like a historian. I think this is how it worked. I'm kind of talking <laughs> out of my ass here, but whatever. Um, you know, that there was this sort of like uprising in Cuba that the Spanish government lost its its uh, footing. So the United States took advantage of that, said, okay, we're going to go in and push the colonial power out, you know, partly because of things like the Monroe Doctrine and uh, partly also because, you know, it was advantageous. It was, it was politically advantageous at the time for the people who were doing it, which is usually part of this kind of thing as well. And uh, we actually could have taken Cuba, you know, that it could have become essentially what Puerto Rico is, but we chose not to. And it's kind of funny the way that our relationship with these different places ended up being different. You know, I'm doing all this stuff about foreign interventions, right, over the course of these two weeks, just taking kind of a higher view look of the United States and foreign interventions. It's extremely variegated in terms of the outcomes and the intentions of what we were doing at, at any given time, partly because the U.S. has this tendency to, like, swing back and forth, right? So we had, like, a president who, like, really wanted us to become involved, and then we had, like, a president who, like, didn't all, at all want to become involved. And so it's, these are our, like, government, like, secrets and shit, right? Well, a lot of this was secret at the time, and and that's part of what, I, what I'm going to talk about as well. So the the... This first one, it was definitely kept secret for, for a long time, you know, um, and it's our involvement in, uh, like I talked about before, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which at the time was called the Republic. It gets kind of confusing. It, at first, it was called Republic of the Congo, which is a different country now, which is right next to the De- Democratic Republic of Congo. Okay. So what what I'm talking about so is the DRC the and the RC. Right. This is the and DRC. And you're talking about the DRC. This is the DRC. Right, right, right. Got it. And in the late 1950s up until very early 1960, it God, was everything led. Everything happened in the 50s. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. You would Almost all of what I'm going to talk about is is what yes. Was ha- from what the was 50s. going on? Is <laughs> were we well, just nuts? The CIA was feeling very empowered. Because, you know, we were coming out of World War II, well, yeah. right? So there was a, a, a transition, right? We're, we're going out of a hot war um, build-up footing, right? Where, where you know, we were, um, you know, doing aluminum drives and things, right? To a situation in which we were in a cold war. So now it's, we're not putting all of our energy... Um, the star of the show now, right, is not the infantry or the Air Force. Now it's the spies because it's a Cold War, right? It's not about, you know, taking 10,000 troops to to land on some beach in Normandy, right? It's about sending out 100 spies to find out what the enemy's doing. It's about creating the U-2 spy plane, like I talked about with the Area 51 episode, right? was basically at the same time. You know, so these kind of covert actions. Right. These missions impossible, if you will, uh, were, you know, the, um, they, this was sort of their, their heyday in a sense. Okay, the DRC. Yes. So in the DRC, the, the leader, the first leader, the George Washington of 
the Congo, if you will, was Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba. And this guy was involved in a plot to assassinate him. So, which will not surprise you at this point, right? Because that's what we're fucking talking about. So we're bored or what? <laughs> I guess you're going to explain that. Okay. I'll explain it. <laughs> and this was, you know, by no means the only, excuse me, covert action that the CIA was involved in in what is now the DRC. In fact, this was taken together the largest covert mission that the CIA had been engaged with up until that point. So as we're talking about, you know, the as we're going through the 50s, right, we talked about our involvement in Iran in 1953, our involvement in Guatemala in 1954. Right. Um, things are just sort of building up to this point now where we're being involved in the Congo. So, of course, handing out bags of cash – because that was that is what the CIA is fucking good at. They they are good at being a very bad bank in the sense that they, the banks are supposed to keep money in and they oh and they just yep sorry I, this that was one of those jokes where I have to over explain it while I'm telling it yeah yeah it's my particular brand of humor <laughs> thank you very much um, of course propaganda <laughs> you know they're setting up their radio stations again. We've heard these kind of things before. Distributing leaflets, um, partly with, you know, misinformation. And they arranged to have a vote of no confidence in the Congolese Senate to try to oust uh, Lumumba by political means first. Because there was actually a lot of resistance within the CIA um, and, and the National Security Council, the NSC, to this notion of assassinating Lumumba. There was, so they did it a different way before actually going for, like, the kill. Right. They they tried to sort of take him out in a different way. And this notion of how they're supposed to take him out, whether whether they're supposed to take him out, it th- this is kind of the mystery of this one, um, is the questions kind of surrounding intention and what was what was supposed to happen and who yeah, gave the order. Motive. And that, the motive, exactly. So um, Lumumba was one of the founders of the Congolese state after it gained independence from Belgium in 1960 when the early state, uh, the early, you know, Congolese state was um, being harassed by Belgian-connected rebels uh, in one of the breakaway provinces. Lumumba asked for help from the U.S. and from the U.N. They turned him down, so he turned to the Soviet Union for assistance, for arms and, and help, um, logistical help. And this created a big rift with the United States, obviously, right? Like, we talked about everything at this point was, are you moving into the sphere of influence? All about spheres of influence, right? Are you moving but into the Soviet so sphere of influence? that's so petty because we turned him down. I know. And there, there, I don't know. There's certain things, it, if you, you know... Like I said, I listened to that audiobook, um, you know, which was called um, Overthrown uh, by Stephen Kinzer. And this is not the only time this happens where there's a person who seems like they, they could be, they should be a natural ally of the United States. And for whatever reason, just interpersonally, they don't get along with the people in the government, our government, with whom they would need to get along. And therefore tragic history ensues, you know, it's, or at least that's the way people like Stephen Kinzer put it. I don't know, you know, obviously they're creating narratives, but, um, 
there's something to that, I think. You know, that, that there, there's a, a, a deficiency. Maybe it's a deficiency in the intelligence itself, which was definitely the case partly with Lumumba, where they thought that he was sort of about to jump into the arms of the Soviet Union, whereas we found out later on through he wasn't? more intelligence that he was not. That, that he was... Um, so, yeah, tragic. What did you say? Tragic what ensues? Tragic history ensues, I think I said. I'm not sure. Both of us forgot already. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just riffing, you know, I'm just riffing here. So, yeah, um, there was also this long secret memo that was found, which was written on February 14th, um, Valentine's Day. Yes. So cute. Yes. 1972, uh, detailing a plot to assassinate Lumumba using poison. This is really crazy. So apparently the CIA's top scientist talked to, I guess, this lab that the military has where they just have, like, diseases. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I assume it's where they, like, are trying to come up with cures for the diseases. But in this instance, that was not what this was going to be used for at all. It was going to be used to assassinate this Yo, that's leader. messed up. So, yeah, they, they were planning on using essentially biological warfare to take out this this African uh, oh leader God. in Congo. And I guess part of why they wanted to do this was because the disease would be, you know, endemic to that area of Africa. So essentially, they would it would cover the tracks, right? Oh, he didn't get assassinated. He died of whatever, oh, you know. Oh, okay. So it would cover, you know, that, the CIA wouldn't, wouldn't I hate be to say it, but... Pretty clever, right? It's pretty, pretty clever. clever. It did not, however, end up coming to be um, because before they could really take this sort of decisive action, Lumumba was uh, forced out of office, arrested, and executed. So, Why? Um, well, because he was making trouble for the you know, Belgian-connected rebels in some of the breakaway provinces, basically, you know, because he wouldn't kind of play ball with with the Belgians who were still very much involved in the country, you know, trying to exert oh their God. influence. So if, eventually um, he was executed by a firing squad with absolutely no trial or anything on January 17th, 1961, at the age of 35. Oh, my God. Yeah by separatists in uh, Katanga province. Uh, the Katangan officials said that he had escaped and been killed by the Congolese, by some Congolese tribesmen, but a UN investigation concluded that that was not at all the case, rather that he was murdered with the involvement, perhaps, of Belgian mercenaries under the order of his longtime nemesis, Moise uh, Tshombe, soon after he arrived in Katanga province after having been arrested. Describe yeah. my face right now. Uh, I would say bat baffled, uh, dumbfounded. <laughs> this is like a straight-up movie. Yeah, and um, there, was, there was a different um, thing that I was listening to where they were talking about how it sort of reads like a spy novel. Yeah. You know, and a lot of this stuff kind of does. So one of the big mysteries in all this, right, is what sort of what did he know and when did he know it, right? And what did he order 
in terms of President yeah. Eisenhower, uh, who was the president at this okay. at this particular time. So this this happened like right at the end of the Eisenhower administration, right before uh, JFK was going to take office. So whether President Eisenhower actually gave an order to have Lumumba assassinated is kind of unclear. So there's this this thing called the Church Committee. There was a committee um, in the U.S. Senate, I believe it had like seven members or something, that from the mid-70s brought info about this operation to light. So this is like about 15 years later. They did a lot of interviews, including with uh, a guy who worked at the White House who was in meetings about you know, this situation. And what he said essentially was that Eisenhower said things that could have been interpreted as either being, you know, let's take him out politically or let's take him out, you know, mm-hmm. let's take him out. Okay. You know. Okay. So again, it comes back to this question of, you know, what what, what, is, what is the action that we want to take to remove this person from office? Kind of vague, exactly like you were saying. But uh, I guess, and he he kind of went back and this I don't remember this guy's name, but he kind of went back and forth on this. But at least some of the time, he believed that it was fairly clear that Eisenhower was essentially telling them, like, if you want to bump this guy off, you know, go ahead and bump him off. Um, so maybe he never said, "I want you to," you know, I acknowledge, and he never maybe wrote on a piece of paper or signed. You know, I acknowledge, you know, that this is whatever legal or whatever for you to do this. But, you know, the people who did it seem to think that they had the blessing of the man at the top. So I think that's kind of how that goes. Dangerous. Yeah, it's a dangerous situation. It's a dangerous game you play when when you start when you start getting into this sort of game of, yeah, um, of uh assassinations. So the the CIA still denies involvement in this episode, but documents have come out that corroborate their ties to to this assassination uh plot. And in addition to the that plot, right, which did not come to pass with the poison and all that crazy shit, although he did fly on a plane with the poison or with the uh the disease rather from the United States to uh, the Congo, uh, you know, as, as it was called at, the, at that time. But it was never, like, administered or... Oh. No. He literally threw it into the Congo River. Because he, know- he said that it, like, was too old or something. Which I did not understand because it's, like, a deadly disease. And he just threw it into a river, I guess. But he didn't know what it was. Oh, no, he knew what it was. This was the top scientist from the CIA. He was the guy who was going to, like, handle it, you know? Oh, I, I thought you met Lumumba. I thought he was the one who threw it away. Oh, no, no, no. It I never like, came. What? It okay. never, it never got close to Lumumba. Right, right. So in addition to that, it seems that the CIA was also involved in the action, the, what did actually kill Lumumba, in the sense what? that they created kind of this permission structure Right, um, within the political context of the Congo, wherein Lumumba could be taken down and and killed by his political enemies. But whether 
they were exactly involved in like his shooting that night, it's still very much a mystery. So that that part of it we don't really know. You know, whether the CIA was like in contact with the Katangan rebels or which they totally could have because again the Danish or uh, the the Belgians were and uh, we were, you know, at least we we had, you know, contacts with the, with the Belgian uh, secret services as well. So who knows? Could be. So in hindsight, though, as I was mentioning earlier, Lumumba was not really, like, gonna turn commie, probably. Like, that's what it seems like. Rather, he was committed to a sort of pan-African nationalism that was was sort of antithetical to communism. Um, this is the, the idea that, the you know, these African nations... Um, should all, you know, be peacefully kind of banding together um, in the sort of organizations that we see today, you know, where, where they, they have these different, you know, regional organizations that try to, you know, do good stuff and, and uh, um, create more stability and security for their people. Okay, so part of the motive for the CIA doing this kind of stuff may also have been to appease the Belgians who had colonized, you know, the Congo before and really, really did not like Lumumba. Okay, so were they, like, also gaining power at that point? No, the Belgians were losing power. They essentially lost control of the country in 1960 when it gained independence, but, you know, they weren't like, okay, we're just going to go back to Belgium then, you know, Uh, cool. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's totally fine. No, they, they stuck around in a lot of the bases that they had there and just refused to leave, which, by the way, also happened to us. After the War of Independence, the British refused to leave a lot of bases uh, that they had in, like, the north and stuff and near the Canadian border. Okay, so that's what's happening, what's kind of sort of happening here. As well as the Belgians. Not only were they doing that, but they were also fomenting these rebel, you know, groups in, like, the Katanga province and other provinces who wanted to break away, you know, from uh, the, the the national government in, in Kinshasa or what was called Leopoldville at that time, the <clears throat> capital of, of Congo. So the uh, purported reason for the assassination, though, was, like I said, Lumumba's, you know, supported, uh, purported rather, you know, communist leanings. Um they didn't want, quote, another Cuba, according to Lawrence Devlin, the CIA station chief in Kinshasa. So they thought that it was going to turn the way of Cuba, which did, you know, succumb to a rebel um, group that was aligned with communism, with the Soviet oh, Union. okay, okay. So they didn't want that to happen in Congo. However, in hindsight, the intelligence shows that Lumumba was not going to do that um, at, at, at all, really. And another aspect of all of this that, that I haven't really touched on too much, but, but Stephen Kinzer in that book are like really kind of hammers on quite a bit, is this idea that a lot of this was to do with natural resources as well. In Congo specifically, the U.S. wanted to protect large, strategically important uh, uranium deposits, including uranium that we had used in the Manhattan Project, actually, which oh. I, I didn't know. 
Um, so we were also kind of afraid that that was going to fall into Soviet hands. So apparently that was part of the, the justification here. Um, but, you know, all of that being said, Lumumba, you know, his sort of idealistic vision for his country has, um, you know, kind of persisted down to today. Like I said, he's he's kind of like basically their George Washington. Um, and like so many of the CIA misadventures, the removal of this democratically elected leader seems to have had pretty ill consequences, you know, at, at least as bad as mm. good, I would say, uh, even if the CIA's short-term goal was achieved, which it undoubtedly was, but, you know, probably yeah. didn't, didn't turn out that great. Just kind of look at, and, you know, what's happened in the DRC, like, for the, the entire history up until now. Where I, I think it's a little bit better there now in the past couple of years. I don't really remember, but but still pretty, pretty bad, right? Okay, so moving on. This one is not from the 1950s, so... Okay. There's that, I guess. <laughs> uh, okay. Fast-forwarding to the... Um, mid-1970s, late-1970s, 1980s. So the, I'm going to talk about Iran-Contra, which I think I mentioned to you that I, that I was going to talk about as well. Okay. So the, you know, I talked about the... The tr- Iran-Contra affair. The Iran-Contra affair, exactly, as it's popularly known. Um, I guess it's also called Iran-Gate. I've never heard Why that before. Why is that but just used all the time? Something gate. Because of Watergate, that's but no real reason just because of that. I don't know. Well, why was it's it strange. called Watergate? Because that's the, I'm assuming, name of the person who owned it. I mean, it's a hotel, so I right. don't know. I don't know. So anyway, uh, the church committee, right, that was looking into all of this, detailed the CIA misadventures, you know, up until the mid-'70s. However, this does not seem to have chastened the CIA too much because they were then involved in one of the biggest political scandals of the past 50 years. Oh, wow. After the church committee and after the Congress had specifically passed laws to try to stop them from doing the exact things that they then did <laughs> in, in the Iran-Contra affair. Like, I want to make it clear from the outset, Congress passed a specific law with, with an amendment that specifically was trying to stop the government from supporting the Contras in Nicaragua. And they just completely ignored that and found some real shady ways to get around it. So the involvement, uh, this whole thing, right, the the Iran-Contra affair, um, centers around the involvement of American support for the so-called Contras, uh, a rebel force in Nicaragua fighting against the Sandinista government. So Sandinista comes from Sandino, who was a leader in Nicaragua that we helped to take out, of course, because that's all... Because there's all, another that's, one. That's there's all, always, always... There's always another one. There's always a always, connection. And I'm not even going to talk about that, um, but just so you understand, that's where it comes from. And the Sandinista government was, you know... They they were actually, you know, had sort of leanings toward communism. Um, so great. So I guess it was all... It was justified. It was all totally justified. Everything was fine. It was fine. A-OK. Whole thing. So America began secretly supporting the Contra rebels 
under the Carter administration. However, the really crazy stuff didn't start until Reagan. Ronald Reagan's, as uh, <laughs> as as he's called in a particular Frank Zappa song, um, under Ronald Reagan, the CIA secretly funneled arms and cash to the Contras, while the president actively misled Congress about this, and they got around that congressional, you know, uh, act that I was talking about earlier. So also got around, of course, any budgeting restrictions because, as we know, Congress controls the purse uh, in the United States. Um, yep. They, they control the spending. You know, ideally, that's how it's supposed to work. And the White House got around this by selling arms to Iran at a substantial premium, even though there was also an arms embargo on Iran after the Islamic Revolution of 1979, that ironically, at the same exact time that the United States was secretly selling arms to Iran, U.S. diplomats were, quote from Wikipedia, lecturing other nations about how morally wrong it was to sell arms to, wait for it, Iran. So So this is not only yeah. super illegal but incredibly ironic and it, like just the 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 the, uh, the the non-parial of hypocrisy. <laughs> it, just... it it is it just really it it's almost beyond words how it it would be like if right now the Trump administration was like secretly selling uranium to Iran. That's that's it would that would be the equivalent of it, so that they could you know like send it to 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 rebels in Venezuela or something. Oh my god! You know that like that would just think about it in the modern context. Like how insane would that? That's what was happening. So not only were they doing one thing that was illegal, but in order to facilitate that illegal thing, they did a different thing that was illegal. So they could make money for the other illegal thing. Logic. It's just so <laughs> logical. It's pretty it's pretty great. You know, it's it's uh it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the plot this this whole thing, right, was was uh mainly led um uh by two guys, but the one that kind of comes out of it is is Lieutenant Colonel Oliver Ollie North. And whether Reagan was fully aware of what North and others in the National Security Council and the CIA were doing, that's sort of the main mystery that comes out of this one um, that's still heavily, hotly debated up until today. Uh, there are people on, on both sides that, that would vehemently argue whether he Ronald Reagan knew or didn't know what was going on. He said that he did not, um, but obviously not everyone believes him. Documents about the scandal were also withheld or destroyed, um, including by Oliver North and his secretary, Fawn Hall, who, who also ended up being indicted. Um, so that, that whole thing, you know, where, where they destroy these documents makes it also a little harder to know, you know, what actually went on in this, this whole thing. Plot, the plot was, however, unearthed when a plane carrying arms to Nicaragua was shot down. The pilot survived. Um, however, the pilot also impl implicated the CIA. So basically said, like, yeah, I was flying an arms shipment for the CIA. And then it all kind of came out. Oh, God. 
it was also detailed in a Lebanese magazine around the same time. So they were sort of mutually reinforcing. Reagan was essentially uh, cleared for lack of evidence by a Reagan-appointed commission called the Tower Commission. So take, take, take that for what you will. Um, it, not dispositive, I would say. Fourteen administration officials, however, were eventually uh, held to some sort of account for this. Eleven wow. – well, you say that, but just, just wait a second. So it, it, eleven were eventually convicted. However, some of those convictions were eventually vacated or overturned on appeal, and all of the rest of them were pardoned by President George H.W. Bush – the recently late President George H.W. Bush at the end of his term, at like the very end of his term. So he, he parted people be? like Ollie North. Um, the end of his term would have been 1991 going into 1992, okay. depending on, you know, if it was like January, the, the first couple of weeks in January, right, before the, the switchover. Um, this thing, right, the pardoning may also have been done, people say, some people are saying uh, may also have been done to protect his own involvement, uh, George H.W. Bush's own involvement in the scandal. But again, that's a mystery. He says that he was not at all involved. He says that he was, quote, out of the loop. Who's to say? <laughs> I don't know. Also, some of the mystery around this one um, kind of centers around when the Iranian arms sales began. The official government line, even after they sort of fessed up, right, was that the Iranian arms sales began in 1985, but evidence points to it actually beginning in 1981. And this is important because it, it goes to what was their initial justification for the, the arms sales, which was that it was an arms for hostage situation. So what I didn't mention was that there were these hostages being held by Iran that we were secretly trying to get away from them with the, this, this arms sale thing as well, which sort of worked and sort of didn't. They let three of them go, but then they took three more. So it didn't like really end up being that great for us in that respect either. So whatever Ronald Reagan's actual role you know, in this whole thing, uh, his popularity, which severely tanked, Right when yeah. this happened, completely recovered by the end of his presidency to the point where he was actually more popular at the end of his presidency than he had been throughout his entire presidency. So he completely was, you know, vindicated, at least in the eyes of his admirers and apologists, right? Not not everyone, but a lot of people. Um, and it's interesting to contrast, not to get too political um, Reagan's stance and his actions vis-a-vis -vis the investigation, you know, for example, you know, um, volunteering documents, volunteering to create a commission as opposed to what Donald Trump is doing right now, where he's, like, obstructing the investigation. Oh, okay. okay you know, okay. not wanting to give up information, um, saying that, you know, we shouldn't have any investigation at all. Um, it's just interesting to to look at how you know, R Ronald Reagan, it, it, for, for whatever you may think about his actual involvement in it, he handled that part of it pretty well. And I think that's part of why he came out kind of smelling like daisies, you know, because 
people figured, I think, you know, hey, you know, it's he didn't seem to be trying to hide anything. Maybe he just did a really good job of hiding stuff, but, <laughs> you know, he didn't make it seem that way. So, um, anyway, okay, so so my opinions on, on the mysteries, right, that we've detailed today, um, I think... If you if you recall back to the beginning, Eisenhower probably uh, did order the killing of Lumumba. I think that that seems like pretty clear, even if it was kind of in a roundabout way um, by insinuation. And and I think it wouldn't be the only time that we've ever seen a world leader do something like that. He either meant it or he meant it. Yeah. So no. maybe maybe it was misinterpreted, but you know, I mean, that's part of what they say may have been the case with this whole Jamal Khashoggi killing. You know, maybe oh. MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, said Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince. Maybe he, you know, hinted or insinuated, oh, we've got to take this guy out or something, right? You don't have to say it necessarily. So I don't know if Eisenhower, again, was like, hey, I want you to go, you know, kill this guy with a rare African disease. So it could have been but, a mistake. Or maybe it was what he meant and he just wanted plausible deniability. Which is always kind of a thing in these in these kind of operations as well. So, anyway, uh, it also seems clear in hindsight again that Lumumba was not leading his country, you know, toward a Soviet-style communist regime. You know that that was not the case. Um, and I come down on the side in terms of the second mystery that Reagan probably was in some way involved in the Iran-Contra affair. It's, it seems exceedingly unlikely to me that Ollie North and Poindexter and these other people were, were involved in this, like, multinational scheme involving a country that we had these, you know, sanctions on. And, and also what was kind of Reagan's pet project was with the Contras. Reagan loved the Contras. Um, he praised the Contras. He, he forgave them for all of their human rights abuses. Um, so the notion that he wouldn't have been in, involved in, in a thing that's centered around the Contras seems kind of far-fetched to me. But we'll, we'll probably never really know. Um, but it, I think H.W., George H.W. Bush, um, I think it's perfectly plausible that he may, he may actually have been out of the loop, as he said. So that's what I think. Okay, so my sources. Um, wow. Again, uh, that book Overthrow by Stephen Kinzer, uh, a review of a different book by Stephen Kinzer called The Brothers. Um, the review was written by Adam Le uh, Labor uh, in the New York Times. Um, of course, wonderful Wikipedia. Uh, the CIA activities in the DRC page, Patrice Lumumba page, and the Iran-Contra affair page, among others. Um, an article called Patrice Lumumba, The Most Important Assassination of the 20th Century by uh, Georges Nzogala Ntalaja, uh, David Robarge, um, an article by him in the Studies in Intelligence from September 2014, an article called The CIA and Lumumba um, from the New York Times uh, Archive from August 2nd, 1981, um, a History.com article about the Iran-Contra affair and various BBC4 um, Alastair Cook Letter from America programs. BBC! I uh, love the BBC. And I also listened to and watched the speech that President Reagan gave about the Iran-Contra affair at the time that it was happening. 
so that was that was uh, that was mine for this week. That was really good. Thanks. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Let's talk about the poisoning of Patsy Wright. So, Patsy Wright was 43 years old when she died. Um, she was blonde, vibrant, uh, quote, a head turner. She So her, like, big hobby was cutting horses, which I didn't know what that was. It is an, an equestrian competition that demonstrates a horse's athleticism and ability to handle cattle. So oh. it's like a, a, it's like, it's like a performance. I think it's a, if I remember, it's like a two and a half minute, like little, like run okay. and then you get judged. And so that oh. was her hobby. Uh, she owned horses. She bred horses. She grew up in Highland Park, Texas. She was the niece of uh, house speaker, Sam Rayburn. Um, she owned two of her own horses and, um, she was preparing to move to a new 30-acre ranch in Alito, Texas. Uh, so Patsy uh, is easily a millionaire. She is the co-owner of the Wax Museum of the Southwest. Um, That's kind of interesting. Yeah. So her and her, it's owned by her and her sister, Sally Horning. And it was originally founded by um, her, her father. Okay. I'm trying not to make this page turning like super loud. I am the father. Okay. October 22nd, 1987. Um, middle of the night. Patsy. She's restless. Uh, she can't go to sleep. Uh, so she takes a dose of NyQuil, which is normal for her. Um, it's something that she did often if she, if she oh. couldn't sleep. But so, we should say not probably recommended... This is also the late 80s. Okay. Um, it probably says, like, specifically on the label not to do shit like that. <laughs> maybe. Okay. No victim blaming. Sorry. According to... Also, I haven't really, like, made clear that she's a victim yet. Okay. So, according to the... Is it, is it still early enough on in the story that I can make dumb jokes? Is that... Have we gotten past no. that point? No. No? Okay, sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Super serial. Okay. According to the police report... Uh, shortly before 3 a.m., Patsy called her sister Sally. Um, her brother-in-law, Steve, answered the phone. Patsy asks for Sally. She says, I've taken some NyQuil and something's really, really wrong. Um, so they called the police, but um, Patsy was in the process of, of moving at this time. And so she was in a rental house and they didn't know the address. So they couldn't get, oh, shit. they couldn't like tell the dispatcher to send people out there. Right. So Sally and her brother-in-law, Steve, they hopped in the car. Um, they made their way over there. Uh, the front door was locked, and the spare keys were missing. Uh, so they kind of had to break in. So Steve crawls through a small bedroom window. He opens, and then he, like, gets in, and then he opens the front door to let Sally in. Um, and they both noticed that the burglar alarm wasn't set because Patsy had put one in after someone had broken several windows, so she was already being cautious. Um, nothing was missing. So Patsy was found unresponsive. Uh, they called the paramedics once they got there. So Steve told police that uh, he moved a table with two plates on it away from the bed in order to do CPR. Um, 
And once, once the EMTs got there, there really, really wasn't much they could do. Um, Patsy had no pulse, no blood pressure, and her eyes were beginning to dilate. She was rushed to the hospital, um, but it was eventually declared dead at 4.15 a.m. Mm. Uh, the police picked up a bottle of NyQuil and put in the evidence bag. They kept right, it. Right, right. Eight days after her death. So she she died and the autopsy didn't really uh, show anything. There were no signs of trauma. No, exactly. Until eight days after her death when the blood and tissue samples came back. Right, right. The test results found strychnine. Oh. Which is very rare. So they tested the NyQuil then, which also turned up positive for strychnine. Of course. So let's talk about strychnine. Okay. It's called the lover's poison. Because I've heard of it, but I don't know too much about it. So only about... Oh, that's cute. The lover's poison. Yes. Aw. <laughs> cute, right? Yeah. So only about 100 companies in the U.S. Uh, sell it or use it. So it's it's actually rarely seen in, in homicides. So it was this was surprising. Um, it's used to kill coyotes, gophers, rats... And like other pests, and even kill the golfers, and even in that form. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, I tell you though, if I if I kill all the golfers, aren't they going to put me away for? <laughs> what is that for? I have no idea what you're referencing. <laughs> it's Caddyshack. Oh, okay. I haven't seen Caddyshack in just forever. Okay. So the even that form of strychnine used to kill pests and stuff. Only three percent of it is like really used in it. So this stuff is strong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes available in college chemistry labs or it's found in the black market because people put it in drugs to like kill people mm-hmm. to get rid of like unwanted associates and shit like that. Sure. The bottle uh, contained enough strychnine to kill eight to nine people. Whoa. There was a lot. I think Overkill. it said you only need like a gram to, wow. to kill someone. So this is what it does to you. Within 15 minutes of ingestion, victims experience muscle twitching, a sensation of suffocation, and massive, uh, there's an onset of convulsions. The face, turn bl- the face turns blue, the mouth contracts into a fixed grin, and death is basically caused by paralysis of the respiratory muscles. Mm. Terrifying. Yeah. So, investigation. Product tampering was ruled out. Uh, the lead investigator, the lead investigator, his name is Sergeant J. Gus Gustafson um, of the Arlington Police Department. He learned that Patsy was known to take Nyquil. Okay, everyone that was interviewed knew mm. that it was it was common knowledge. Right. So some so presumably would have the person who killed her. Exactly. Yeah. So somebody. It had to be somebody who knew Patsy and someone who was patient and could bide their time. So a quote from uh, Gustafson is, quote, this isn't rage or domestic fracas. This one is just put the stuff in and walk away. They knew that sooner or later she would drink it, end quote. So this person was patient. Mm -hmm. Suicide was also ruled out. So, um... What's freaky about this is that Patsy was very healthy. She was she was healthy. She was not under any financial strain. She was planning for the future. Even uh, her like alarm clock went off that morning. Like she had she had planned. She was planning on moving. She bought a whole new property, moving to Alito, Texas. She had a whole life in front of her. Um, 
So Gustafson started interrogations. And right then and there, the family started pointing fingers at each other. Mm. Uh, it got worse after the, the discovery of Bill and Bonnie Alexander, who boarded Patsy's horses. So she bought horses from them, and she paid them for board and for training. And in that past um, few months or so, they had gotten really close over um, sharing their horses and stuff like that. I could see if this were, like, an episode of, like, Dateline. Yes. Like you were watching with your mom. Yeah. I could see there being, like, as they're telling the... They became very close, and it's like a montage of them, like, you know, patting a horse and, then, like, <laughs> drinking a glass of wine together, you know. Yes. Like, this show, their, their friendship was, you know. Exactly. Mo- moving beyond just the horse phase, you know. But uh, they discovered that uh, the Alex- Bill and Bonnie Alexander cashed a $4,000 uh, check in- from Patsy. So... Mm. Patsy wrote in the date and she signed the check, but the Alexanders are the ones that filled in the amount, the $4,000. Uh, Patsy asked her best friend, Karen Beatty, to liquidate some assets. And when Beatty asked about any outstanding checks that she had to look out for, Patsy didn't mention anything about this $4,000 check. The Alexanders claimed that Patsy wrote the check and told them to put in whatever she, whatever she owed them for that that month that was their claim mm-hmm. um furthermore her her horses those expensive horses like 26 grand horses were put in alex in the alexander's names so the reasoning for that we suppose is that patsy didn't want her brother-in-law steve to get her hands on uh, to get his hands on her horses if something were to happen they did not have a great relationship Steve and Patsy, okay. uh, her brother-in-law. Um, so they were also looking at the Alexanders because strychnine is sometimes used by horse breeders to treat animals. Oh. But both Bonnie and Bill passed polygraph tests. And not that that seriously means anything, yeah. but in the 80s, this was the 80s. <laughs> people still, I don't know, people still believe in them, but they haven't been admissible in court for years, years many, yeah. many, many years. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if they were ever admissible in court, actually. Because, again, it is junk. It's total junk science. Yeah. Pseudoscience. Yeah. So the main suspects, Steve Horning and Bob Cox. Let's talk about Steve Horning first. So Steve is Patsy's brother-in-law. So Patsy's friends say that she thought Steve was a phony and a plastic. They were... He's a phony! What's that from? Uh, Did you just make it up? No, from Family Guy, I think. (laughs) Terrible. That was terrible. (laughs) But that's what she thought. So Mm -hmm. Steve spent all of uh, Sally, Sally's passy sister, Steve spent all of her inheritance in a few years. They went into debt, and Steve was actually a, a big game hunter, and he did a lot of gambling, too. And that's where all the money went. Let me just say, big game hunting is bullshit. No one needs to do that. The article explained how in his office there was, like, a, a cougar, like, rug. And the interviewer was like, oh, where where did you where did you shoot this cougar? And he said, in the heart. 
fuck you, dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Oh, I was expecting, like, Kenya? Question right. mark? <laughs> like. Cool. Oh, my God. So. Makes you a real man. Gross. Right. Absolutely disgusting. I know. Sally and Patsy had a $500,000 life insurance policy on the other. Mm. So if one died, the other used the money to buy out the other share of the wax museum. So, so they were the co-owners. Right. So they bought out the other share if one were to die. Oh, okay. Um, making the other one sister the sole owner. Then the sister's heir would split that I half a million. See. So this is where the brother-in-law... This is where the brother-in-law comes he's, in. He's tipping the dominoes over until right. it gets to him. Okay. Right. Patsy wanted to change it. She wanted sure. to change it because the museum stock price was uh, growing from when they signed it. Who doesn't love a good wax museum? Right? In, you know. in Texas. And is that a big thing in the South? I feel to like me, it's a big thing in the South. You know, it's like going to Madame Tussauds in Las Vegas. It's like, how, how do they keep it so cool? It's so high here. Why don't, why don't the max wax melt? What? Okay, I got to see. <laughs> Um, it's it's crazy. Is it like really cold in there? I mean, they have to keep it pretty cool for the so the wax doesn't melt. I don't know. There, there was some joke about it being hot and wax melting in there somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> Something. So Patsy wanted like a, yeah, she wanted to change it um, because the museum stock value was going up, and. <laughs> <laughs> I am gesturing. Right. Up. Good. That's good. And Sally was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, no. Um, in the fall of 1985. So she was like, mm, let's change this. Yeah. So if Sally died, then Steve, he'd get half, freaking half a million dollars. Right, of course. So Sally went through chemo and was declared in remission that summer. Um, but both her... Uh, both Patsy and Sally still, they still, they agree that it should be changed. They scheduled a meeting, but Patsy was killed two weeks before that meeting. Never, so the policy went into effect. Um, under community property laws, Steve has claimed 25% of the museum stock. So they're setting up a will now that, that gives their children, Leslie and Wayne, the museum if Steve or Sally dies. So if Sally dies before Steve, then Steve will own a controlling share of the stock, which is exactly what Patsy was trying to prevent. Right. Uh, so the question here is that, did Steve poison Patsy for the money? Did he do it for the museum? Um, in 1970, he was arrested and charged with if, assaulting a woman. If I was talking to him, if I was like interrogating him, I'd, I'd probably like ask him that. I'd be like, Would you like hey, slam your hand on the table? Did you, did you kill her for the money? Did you do it for the museum? Did you kill her for the museum? Are you here for the wax? <laughs> did you? Are you just into wax? Is why it for you, the glory? Did you? Why did you kill her? <laughs> um, in 1970, he was arrested and charged with assaulting a woman, but the charges were dropped. Mm. So he doesn't seem like a good dude. I don't he know. doesn't. But neither does her. Does Passy's ex-husband Bob Cox? Oh, he's this the other. This dude's creepy. He's, he's the, the other, other main one. suspect. Okay. So. He 
also owned a wax museum in Grand Prairie, Texas. What? So he was he he wasn't just a guy who owned a wax museum. He was an <laughs> investor. That, <laughs> now not I'm not just a just guy. a guy who owns a wax museum. I he, just wanted to know. He was a, <laughs> I've got, sure got many fine holdings. Well, he, he that's what he was an investor and he like sure. bought and sold many companies him and his wife Emily. So the State Fair of Texas canceled his lease mm. um, after a rough year of the wax museum and didn't have such a great year. So he had to sell it. So his wax museum was not doing well. Not doing well. So he calls that's up. Inter- that's interesting because the other wax museum was doing well. Doing great. So he calls the up whole, Patsy and you Sally. Know, wax museum market is very complicated. Yes. <laughs> in Texas. I just feel Go like on. it's a big thing. <laughs> so he called Patsy and Sally, some uh-huh. fellow wax museum owners, like, hey, sure. are you guys interested? You know what buy? So Patsy... Gets an appraisal on the collection. She offers fourteen thousand dollars, and it's not that much. Cox is like, "What? What kind of?" He's insulted because yeah, that's he's pretty low. He offer, has it insured then, for three hundred thousand dollars, right? But this is also nineteen eighty like two. Sure, still not a lot. Still not a but lot for a it, museum. He has it insured for, so he turns it down. Sure, but he asks out Patsy. In the, in the meantime, he asks her out. He was still married at the time. I was going to say, isn't he married? No, he was separated. Oh. But he was still officially married. And okay. Patsy's like, you know what? Ask me when your divorce is final. Right. They started dating a few months later under the false pretense that he was divorced, even though he wasn't. He didn't get divorced until a couple years later, like officially. Um, but they started dating a few months later. They quickly fell in love. February 1st, 1983. Uh... The building in Galveston, where Cox was planning to open another wax museum, caught on fire. Now, this is a big deal because Cox claims that homeless people seeking shelter set the fire, but attorneys said that Cox caused it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a trial. This is a big trial um, for arson. So the trial brought out that Cox and his many companies also were in financial trouble. So... Patsy and Bob got married in April of 1983, and it wasn't until after the wedding that Patsy said that Bob changed. Uh, He became verbally abusive to her and her family. He became lazy and greedy. Uh, He they lived off of her her incomes, her earning earnings. So she was paying for everything. She paid for the house, utilities, food, all of it. Um, Let's see. Uh, so, furthermore, Cox had a gambling problem. He spent his afternoons at the Dallas Country Club gambling everything That'd all the be time. Nice, uh, be a nice, nice work if you can get it, right? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. My God. So. What a deadbeat. <laughs> their marriage obviously isn't, go- isn't going well. So Patsy calls up Emily, uh, Bob's ex-wife, and is like, hey help me out. And she's like, okay, here's our old marriage counselor. Why don't you go to him? And the marriage counselor is literally like, yo, Bob is a straight up sociopath. You need to lead him ASAP. <gasps> what? Yeah. The marriage counselor was like, you need to leave him? Yeah, the <gasps> marriage counselor said, "Wow, this is not, you need to leave him. So, uh, in April of 1984, they separated and then the divorce was finalized um, a few months later in October. So, after the divorce, Cox started following her. 
started following Patsy. He starts parking outside her house at night. He even, like, put on disguises and, like, walked around and followed her and shit. He would watch her. He threatened her. Um, He, Patsy recalls um, that during their marriage they had conversations and he would say stuff like that he knows people who could get anything done and that uh, he could get someone, quote, snuffed out and crazy shit like that. Patsy got a, so she also got a restraining order against him after all of that. Uh, So meanwhile, Cox has this arson trial Mm -hmm. over his head. His attorney meets with Patsy about eight to ten times between 1986 and 1987 to talk about the value of his property, the property that they live on. So Patsy, they they not only talk about that, but Patsy knows she's got some dirt. So she says one of the most valuable pieces in the collection, which was some kind of antique chest, wasn't actually burned in the fire. Hmm. It was never destroyed, and it was actually in Cox's office. But he claimed it on, like, the insurance? Okay. So, sources say that Cox called up Patsy and was like, hey, you can't talk about, don't testify at my trial. Don't, please change your testimony. She's like, no, like, I'm telling the truth. She refused. Patsy was killed 10 days before the trial was set to take place. It's a pretty strong motive. Yes. There were more coincidences. So, 11 months after Patsy's death, her wax museum, the one her and her sister owned, the Wax Museum of the Southwest, burned to the ground. Arson investigators said it came from, stemmed from the electrical box. Uh, Hmm. And the insurance paid out $4 million, but it wasn't enough to replace the museum. It would have cost something like $5.5 million or something like that. So what Sally, she started rebuilding right away. She hired a wax figure maker to create 135 new pieces. And then she added a Ripley's Believe It or Not collection along with it. So she was like, I'm not going to let this stop me. I'm going to exactly. like come back even bigger. Yes. Okay. Yes. Especially after her sister's death. Yeah. Murder. Um, Cox won his trial. Really? Yes. He was acquitted. He was awarded $1.3 million. The jury could not prove that he purposely set wow. fire. So he, he got to collect on the insurance, essentially. Yes. Okay. Yes. He also threw a, quote, murder mystery party just a couple weeks after, after Patsy's death. I feel like the, this kind of reminds me of, like, OJ coming out with that book. What was it called? It was like, If I Did It or something yeah, like that. Yeah, he... Oh, my... Don't even get me started on that. That pisses me off. I know. Um, the family hired a private investigator named Bill Deere who believes that the case can be solved. But uh, yeah. to this day, we've really got nothing. So my questions are, did Bob Cox kill Patsy Wright to avoid her testimony or as revenge to get money? Or did her brother-in-law, Steve Horning, poison her for the museum and for the money? Remember, you're going to... Was it for the museum? Was it for the money? The wax! Are you in, are you in it for the wax? <laughs> I just wanted the wax. And that is the... Interesting. ...mysterious poisoning of... Yeah. And you said it pretty Cassie much just came from one right. source. Yes, from a D Magazine article by Glenna Whitley. Oh, okay. 
I think the title was The Wax Museum Murder Mystery or something like that. The Museum of the Wax, or The Mystery of the Wax Museum. The Museum of the Wax Mystery, Museum Wax Mystery. It sounds like a Agatha Christie novel. Right? It does, doesn't it? Murder in the Wax Museum or something. Okay, so I think it's time for some weird, weird shit, shit in, in the news. news. Weird, weird shit, shit in, in the, the news. news. Weird shit in the news. Weird shit in the news. Weird. Okay. Um, so I was gonna do a few just short ones. So this one I'm gonna start out I'm gonna start with with a one sad one and then a couple of other more kind of funnier ones. So this they're all from the AP, which has this great section uh, called Strange. So that's where I go my stuff from for the most part. So this is a, a Associated Press story titled New Study Explains Creation of Deadly California Fire NATO. So I don't know if you heard NATO? about this, like like a tornado within a fire. So the, I don't know if you heard about this happening during the campfire in uh, Northern California. There was one of these that happened, and they're very very rare. So this happens. It's a it's a weather event that happens when you have an enormous fire, right, which creates a heavy cloud cover, which extends miles up into the the, the atmosphere and ha- creates an ice layer on top of it, right? So then you, you have this, like, super inversion, basically, right? So superheated air on the bottom and very cold air on the top. And that's a tornado, yeah. And that's how you create a cyclone, which creates a tornado. And unfortunately, there was a firefighter that was killed oh by the fire NATO that, that was created within the campfire um, on July twenty uh, sixth, I believe it says. So it's it's very strange. Um, in this instance, unfortunately, very tragic as well. So uh, that's my weird slash sad shit in the news that uh, is for weird. this fire this tornadoes week. are weird. Very very strange. Um, this one it's a bit more lighthearted. Um, titled "Leaping Lemur Surprises Florida Trooper During DUI Arrest," oh uh, and it's p- pretty much just. Exactly what it sounds like. Florida, uh, not Australia. You, you've heard of Florida man. This is Florida lemur. <laughs> the Florida lemur surprised a Florida highway patrol trooper uh, when it crawled from a trailer. Excuse me, being pulled by a pickup truck that had been stopped for driving erratically and hitting other cars. Oh, um, so this this driver, twenty uh, seven year old Shane Taylor, did warn the trooper that the lemur named Miko does bite. Oh. So don't get too close. Wait, so it was the driver's lemur? It was the driver's lemur. What? Not only did the driver have a lemur, but also had a tortoise, a goat, a parrot, and a wallaby. What? Yep, that's right. A little little taste of Australia. This is bizarre. Down in Florida. Florida. Yes. <laughs> uh, this one um, file under uh, dumbest criminals. Police... Man freed from jail steals car from its parking lot. Jesus. Yes, he was that dumb. So this happened in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. And according to the AP, police say a Pennsylvania man released from jail immediately stole a car from the parking lot of the jail. Uh, at the Westmoreland County Prison, officials say that moments after 36-year-old Thomas Lee Williams was released, he attacked a woman in the parking lot Tuesday evening and stole her car with the victim's one-year-old in the back seat. Yeah. And this dude just got out of jail? This 
moments before, moments before, um, did crash about 15 minutes later, but happy to say the woman, the baby seems like they were okay. They were taken to the hospital to be checked out, but it, it didn't mention any injuries or anything. Uh, obviously he immediately went back to jail. So that's the story of some dumb criminals. Um, okay, so I only have yeah. one. Okay, go ahead. Uh, the title is School's Elf Murder Mystery Assignment Draws Criticism. <laughs> I so would have loved this. I thought this was funny as hell. <laughs> yeah. But um, basically, last Tuesday at Flower Flowery Field Primary School in Hyde, England, Fourth graders walked into their classroom to find a crime scene. So it was basically like a chalk outline of the elf on the shelf, and there was fake blood, and there was crime scene, <laughs> a crime scene tape, and it was like a writing assignment. But this one mom was contacted the school and said she was pissed, and she said, quote, it wasn't right that she had to explain the concept of homicide to her child, end quote. Okay. What, what were they, were they like six-year-olds? Like They were you gotta learn eight sometime. and nine-year-olds. Yeah, it's a little young, but uh, come on, still. She went on to say her daughter was traumatized by the activity and had nightmares. The school has no plans to pull the detective game and even gave out a new clue this week. Yay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that's definitely overblown. Uh, so That's it. That's the podcast. That was a podcast. Um, it's... Team it's, Mystery! It's a mi- it's amazingly easy to make a podcast. Uh, you should make a podcast. Everyone has a podcast nowadays. Like when I was listening to the Twit podcast, speaking of podcasts, um, every guest was like, "Oh, oh, I also have a podcast." I was like, "This is what it is. That's what it's like, about." Okay, you know your podcast, but. Um, thanks for listening to our podcast. Yes. Um, we are definitely some of those annoying people who in a social situation will be like, oh, yeah, like, on my podcast. I don't think it's annoying. I'm for it. If you have a podcast, oh, yeah. tell me about it. Definitely. I want to know. Yeah, if, so, if you have a podcast, definitely email us or send us a message us on Instagram or at mysterymurderythingy at gmail.com. Or send us a, a Twitter. Oh, God. I did that for you. Um, rate and <laughs> well, you were, you were going to talk about our Twitter. comment on oh, yeah, iTunes, right? Please rate and comment and subscribe. Yeah, that helps a lot. Definitely. Um, we are on Twitter. Yes. Please follow us on Twitter at Mystery Murdery. Yes, at Mystery Murdery. Um, I'm afraid Twitter is going like, to lock us because we only <laughs> we only have two followers. They're going to be like, "This is fake." Follow us on Twitter. So Please that, follow us on so Twitter. They don't kick us out hit us up on instagram like us on facebook right it's all there yeah on all the social medias maybe we'll have a tumblr someday someday i hate tumblr i don't know they said you you can't put porn on there anymore so which i guess you know it's a bummer because tumblr is a great platform for porn I don't see what the issue is. I don't, people want to look at porn on Tumblr. What's, I don't see what the problem I is. I don't know what the issue is either. But, uh... Anyway. All right. Uh, yeah, so Anywho. have a great uh, rest of your Wednesday. Hey, yeah, guys. Happy or Wednesday. whatever day it is. Um, happy listening. finals week to all my college students out there. Um, do your thing. We sure. believe in you. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Um, Kwanzaa, the 26th. You know, Merry Xmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. Um... You know, Kwan- Kwanzaa. Blessed, blessed Yule. Uh, Eid. Um, 
Edel Fetter. Sam Hain. Sam Hain. That's it's a good one. It's not Sam Hain. It's called. It's, that's not how it's pronounced. It's pronounced. Oh, I have no idea. Totally different, and I don't remember what it is. Um, there's probably other holidays around this time. There's so many. Are there holiday mystery? Should we talk about a holiday mystery? That sounds like a good idea, guys. Tune in next week for some holiday mysteries, maybe. Is Santa real? There's a good one. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, me neither. Virginia. Uh, okay, I think we've. Uh... Okay.